Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Neil R., Ann Hill O., Casper J., and Sean W. Dave Cates has returned to the show. Dave is president and CEO of Denison Mines, a Canadian-focused uranium project developer advancing the Wheeler River project. Denison also owns a 22.5% stake in McLean Lake Mill. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol DNN and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol DML. Dave, how you doing, sir? Andrew, I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on. Well, Dave, let's get your thoughts here on the market. And what do you expect to see in 2021 for uranium? 2021 for uranium, bit of a question mark. Um, you know, we look at 2020, up and down year, and we're looking for a direction here uh, where it'll go in 2021. I, maybe I step back a little bit, Andrew. We're really bullish on where the market's going to go uh, in the midterm, and that's underpinned by the fundamentals in the space, right? And everyone will say that uh, about commodities. Oh, the fundamentals look good. The fundamentals look good. But here they, they really are bright. I mean, we've seen massive supply curtailments from some of the best mines in, in the world that have led to a significant deficit in the market. And so that, that really is driving a rebalancing of our market. And fundamentally, it will be improving uh, the story moving forward. We should see uranium prices pressured by these curtailments to a place that is more reasonable and where uh, these, these top tier mines can meet the need, meet meet the needs of customers, and and make money, and and that'll require prices that are higher than where we're at today, and we need to see prices move up. Uh, but what will happen, you know, in 2021 is, is a tough question actually, because the market is a bit fickle, and it often responds to the latest news uh, as a directional tick rather than the bigger news. And that's what that's what I think's happened in 2020, and uh, we're really now waiting for the next directional tick for the actual uranium market players to decide whether they have a call to action to start buying uranium that they obviously need that the 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 writing is on the wall for them, but they're not into that market quite yet, and they need to see you know they they need they need some directional tick to tell them whether they should be coming in or whether it is in fact safe. To wait. So, you know, it's actually a harder question than you think you've just asked in terms of handicapping uh, what will happen in, in, in 2021. I guess what I'd say maybe to wrap up on this point, uh, unless you, you know, want to go further, which we can, is that the balance of risk and the balance of probability on where the price goes is definitely skewed to an increasing price because of those real fundamentals. Um, you know, we, we don't have a, a lot of action going on in the sector right now, and we've found a really good level of support close to $30 a pound, which is significantly up from where we've been, uh, you know, over the last three years. And we've had moments above, but, but this is a really solid level of support here. And I, I think it really should act as, as, a, as a new floor, and we should be moving from here 
rather than uh, being too concerned about losses from this level. Yeah, I agree. I think we've seen higher numbers since 2016, you know, and this is uh, pretty much the characteristic style of the market um, as far as the timing it takes to move up, gradual, uh, fairly boring. But uh, at the same time, nonetheless, everything is, is lining up nicely. And I think to some degree, it's a blessing that we have more time from an investor perspective. It's been quite a blessing. And a lot of people are probably impatient and don't agree. But uh, to me, it, it remains to be a blessing because you can continue to selectively deploy capital. Talk about 2021 as far as the broader market and the economic conditions that are faced around the world uh, with COVID uh, likely to prevail in 2021. What's your thoughts on how that will affect Kazataprom, Cameco potentially buying in the market and utilities, you know, still asleep at the wheel? Well, yeah, look, the nuclear energy industry is, is, a, is a different one when you consider the impact of uh, the broader economic uh, consequences of, of the pandemic. Uh, you know, we, we don't have to look very far to see how that goes. Uh, we just look back to March, April, May, June. Of 2020, and and so I, I think obviously there's a prospect of similar things happening in 2021. But what we know is that nuclear energy answered the call uh, when when the market and the economy and, and businesses were were shaken by what to do with the pandemic. Nuclear power plants uh, have such rigorous uh, safety and operating protocols that uh, they responded with, with without any issues to the pandemic and kept the lights on. And they kept the hospitals running. And uh, for us and for the Kazadam Proms and the Kamikos, that means that demand was was largely unaffected. Whereas we certainly saw other commodities and other industries have significant demand reactions to the fact that people were uh, shuttered into their homes and factories were closed. So I think I'm, I'm quite optimistic in terms of nuclear energy and its ability to continue and, and uh, generally uh, through 2021 without disruption, regardless of, of what happens with the pandemic. And I think that means that we'll see the demand scenario in our sector uh, persist. It, it, there are implications uh, of the pandemic that do affect the utilities, though. And, and one of those, I saw an infographic uh, just the other day talking about the, the payments that people are or aren't making. Uh, in the pandemic, you know, the average, the average Joe. And, you know, of course, I could sympathize with, with that situation. People have lost work. Um, they're trying to figure out which bills do I pay. And one of the bills that they're not paying is their utility bill. Now, it's, it's not the, the first one that people don't pay, but it is one. And that, that definitely has a consequence to the utilities. And so if we go to that next part of that question of, and what will the utilities do? And, and, you know, do they, what will they, uh, how long will their behavior of, of non-buying persist, even though they absolutely need to? And that's something we have to consider, is that it could persist a little bit longer than uh, even they might want it to, just based on the financial burden that, that their own companies, uh, the utility companies, are facing by having some non-payment from their rate payers. And so that, that's not the best development. But at the end of the day, uh, as those uh, inventories get drawn down by the utilities because they're not buying, they're cons and they're and they're running their plants, they're consuming, and they're drawing something down, and that's their inventories. You know, they've already been drawing those inventories down because of all of this uncertainty we've had in our market over the last several years, 
from the Section 232 petition to the War Nuclear Fuel Working Group, particularly these guys in the United States, they don't really have, um, you know, this massive amount of inventory. And they were already in a, in a lighter than normal place. And so if they do look to lean on those inventories to avoid sort of the capital outlay of, of topping up um, their inventories, then because of because of the pressure from those ratepayers, it's it's really going to put them in a spot where they have no choice. Like they're already vectored that way, but if if they do that for a, yet another year, I mean, then we're really poised for the utilities to all come in, or many of them to come in at the same time with more indiscriminate needs. They're certainly able to be selective right now. And I think that's why you're seeing little activity in the market is that they're not being pushed to buy material, they're being selective. And there isn't a lot, there's a pretty big bid ask spread on a lot of big deals, so not a lot's happened. And they're able to say, okay, well, I guess I don't really like that price, so we're not gonna transact. But you know, the pandemic has this possibility of, of causing them to push that activity out, and maybe to your point, because there's a little bit more time uh, to position into the sector but it really does set them up for a difficult spot, to be in a difficult spot when they actually cross those thresholds on inventories and have to come back into the market and buy no matter what. And, and that could be you know, very exciting for the uranium price. It, it'd be a challenge for companies to respond, right? Like Cameco and Kazatomprom, they, they do have shuttered production, but even Kazatomprom can't respond overnight. Uh, take some time to develop their well fields. And turning back on MacArthur River also does not happen overnight. So there certainly is a window there where you could have quite a pinch. And, and then if the long-term demand starts coming in behind those utilities, uh, because they're, they're you know, finally restocking for, for the next cycle, well, then we just have a shortage of projects. And, and that's really the, up, the whole upside that people need to see in our sector, is that the, the project pipeline's broken because the price has been so low for so long. And it just takes the utilities to get into the sector in a meaningful way for that to be exposed. Yeah, the longer it goes on, the better it goes. And the point about existing restart capacity, even if you bring on all those restarts, all of them, uh, which obviously a lot of them need, need, you know, 45, 50, 55, really to see everything existing capacity brought back online, um, unless you're extremely ambitious to lose more money, you still have a problem if anybody wants to restock. So if you want to buy, you know, some extra stock at the grocery store, those shelves will still be empty because there's nothing coming in. So, well, let's move over for a moment. Let's talk just briefly. Uh, this shows about uh, Denison, but let's talk just briefly about Uranium Participation Corp. You know, general update there. Talk about the monetization strategy there to sustain itself and to take advantage of the various market stages going forward. Do you see that Uranium Participation Corp ultimately ends up lending material? And also, do you see that part of the monetization strategy in the future is some type of sale of uranium to utilities? Well, UPC has been a, been a fun company uh, for the last few years because Whatever's happened in the market, uh, we've we've been able to exploit uh, for the benefit of the UPC shareholder, and and that, and that is a fun thing to do uh, to know that even when the price is down, um, you're you're able to actually accrete value uh, for for the shareholder. UPC doesn't really exist um, to have an exit, uh, if if I put it bluntly. Uh, UPC really exists 
for the investor to have exposure. So, you know, there's there's no there's no preconceived plan of uh, UPC ending uh, liquidating any of its holdings at any time uh, to to anyone. The the plan is for it to exist so that the private investor can participate directly in the moves in the price of the commodity, um, rather than investing in, in a Denison as an example where the investor takes on risk and the reward associated with the mining business. Uh, UPC is really just trying to give that pure commodity exposure. And so, you know, I don't think anyone should, and there's been, there's been, I don't know, a totally unreasonable discussion about uh, UPC and what, what it's doing and when it will do it. And at the end of the day, the UPC's pounds are in the vault. Um, you know, the, the company exists to have pounds in the vault so that the investor can buy them and get exposure. Nobody should have UPC in any model for the for the uranium sector as as inventory that will supply the market, because that's not why it exists. You know, we we are happy to have the material in the vault for good. Otherwise, we don't have a product to manage. Otherwise, we don't have a way for the investor to get that exposure. Now, our strategy uh, over the last two years or three years uh, has been focused on one thing, and, and that's also been a point of confusion uh, amongst some in the industry that we, we've really focused on clearing up is um, UPC is not a trader. UPC is not a speculator. Uh, UPC exists to do one thing, and that is provide that exposure to the investor. To do it properly and to do the best job we can, we focus on one measure which is the pounds U308 equivalent per share. Every share, you know, the whole company is valued under uranium holdings. If we can get more pounds U308 equivalent in each share, then we've added value for that shareholder. And so our transactions are all about that. If we, if we trade at a big discount, then it is accretive. We will add pounds per share. If we sell the uranium, a small amount, at the market, and then we buy back our shares at a discount to the market price. I mean, the math is not hard. That means we will have added, taken away uh, fewer pounds than we did shares in relative terms, and we will add pounds per share. When we trade at a premium, we do the opposite thing, and we've done that for years, which is raise money at a premium to the actual uranium price, and then we buy uranium at the actual uranium price. So again, we've added fewer shares relative to the number of pounds we've added and that adds pounds per share. So it's, it's so funny because the company is so simple and yet there's so much discussion about UPC being a seller um, in the market. We've sold almost none of our actual inventories over the life of this company, but we have added millions of dollars of accretion by doing exactly what I described and clipping that arbitrage that exists sometimes in our stock. Good points. And one of the things I think, uh, you know, with UPC and with yellow cake is typically in a bear market or, you know, stagnant market conditions like we've experienced, we're, we're not necessarily in a bear market anymore, but we haven't realized the fun of a, of a bull market yet where there's a discount that occurs. And what do you think that discount is, is discounting? I like to think, and it's been our opinion, that the forward cost of GNA for these types of funds is where the discount lies in a bear market. And then of course that changes and we go to a premium when we get into better market stages. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's probably part of it. Um, you know, I, I can look at UPC 
and see that uh, you know through those accretive transactions, you know over the last decade, as just as an example, um, you, we should have seen our pounds per share decline for exactly that grind associated with GNA, right? That would be normal. Uh, we've actually seen our pounds per share stay flat or positive because we've been able to offset that that grind that grind of GNA by doing these accretive transactions now. I think that's part of the reason why UPC trades typically better than yellow cake uh, when you look at premium discount to NAV. I think UPC also trades better on premium discount to NAV when we look at yellow cake on liquidity. So part of it is is you're right to say that there's a sensible thought process there around the cost of ownership in a bear market uh, and frankly in any market. But um, I think you also see other factors affect the NAV uh, premium discount, uh, probably more so. And, and like if we look at March uh, 2020, when obviously we had this uh, pandemic uh, crisis in the market, UPC got to a 30% discount. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that was really sentiment on the uranium price. I, I think that was liquidity selling uh, in the market generally. And so we can be vulnerable to those types of things. Now, we didn't stay at 30%, and then we bought back stock as we made those accretive transactions, selling a little bit of uranium. We got that discount back into the single-digit range. It's, it's bounced around a little bit. I do think it is a measure sometimes of sentiment, which you do have to be cautious about. I mean, someone is buying UPC, for example, today at a 10% discount, to the market, if, if that's where we're at, uh, just for illustration, right? Does that mean that the uranium price will decline by 10%? Not necessarily, right? There are literal in market factors affecting the people who hold UPC the way they are trading UPC that are not perfectly representative uh, of the uranium market. Right? It, it is not. The uranium market is not that big. UPC is not that big a company. Um, there are other factors like that liquidity selling that can play into it. Broader market sentiment, like we talked about earlier, just general market sentiment is, is another thing that can affect it, similar to that liquidity selling. You know, people have seen UPC have big gains. You know, it is still an equity um, where we have big gains. We sometimes see profit taking. So. There are a lot of things that actually do factor into the way uh, the company trades. Certainly, if we're at a place where we're trading at a 20% premium, I mean, someone must be very bullish, the price of uranium, to be paying 20% above the implied market value uh, when, they're, when they're buying UPC. And that's uh, usually a sign for us that we should be raising money and buying uranium. And that's usually what we do. So a little more complicated, I'd say, Andrew, but, um, you know, it depends on which set of glasses and lenses you're looking through. There's usually some information value in the, in the way UPC trades, but it's, it really ought to be used with a great deal of caution because of all those dimensions that can affect the, uh, the trade. Yeah, and these are all good points that you bring up about, you know, the sentiment and, of course, the liquidity issues that we all saw across the sector in March. Certainly, it makes sense to raise when you have a good premium and you can add assets, a uh, cake and a can into a storage facility. Well, let's move on. Let's get to Denison. Recent capital raise, uh, largely unexpected by the market, it appears from looking at the price action. Shares ran up uh, around the 50, upper 50 cent range in September. Speaking from the uh, New York Stock Exchange Amex listing, 
the raise was about 37 cents for about 19 million US. Who was the demand coming from? Why was it done now, Dave? And how far would this carry the company considering the stagnant market conditions probably through 2021? Well, Andrew, good questions, and, and I'm glad we the timing of our uh, of our call here, our interview is uh, is really good to be able to have a platform to to cover some of this. You know, I, I think we need to do we do need to take a slight step back uh, to talk about the, the the equity raise in the right context, and so uh, I'm going to try to do that and and, let, and make sure I come back to the right question, okay? But because uh, I, I definitely don't want to skirt any of those questions, but um, to, to understand why we would raise the money. Um, you, you and 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 perhaps to, to demyth the the fact that we wouldn't have needed the money, we do have to go back uh, to what we're doing with the company and where we're at, and it goes takes us back, you know, uh, to 2018 when the pre-feasibility study for Wheeler River came out, and we had the uh, powerful combination of in situ recovery. Uh, mining and the uh, high-grade Phoenix deposit. You know, Phoenix's highest-grade undeveloped uranium deposit in the world. That with that cost profile of uh, operating expenses, just over three dollars U.S. and all in, fully loaded, all in costs, initial capital, sustaining capital, operating closure, all that stuff at at eight dollars and ninety cents a pound U.S. We made a decision at the end of 2018 to move this project forward. It was it was a no-brainer. I mean, we can figure out the price at the time, it doesn't matter. Um, with an all-in at 890, uh, this is this is potentially the best project in the world, uh, built or not built. And we, we are bullish on the Iranian market, but we didn't need to rely on an increase in the Iranian price to justify the capital, develop, the capital to develop this project. And so that decision was made in 2018. There's been no change to that decision. Uh, in 2019, we got going hard on this project uh, in the field, and we actually carried out, uh, you know, this is within months of that PFS. We carried out a live in-ground ISR test, you know, with you, you, not using reagents, but, but pumping water through actual wells drilled into the ore body. We were at that for months, um, proving up that we could move solution through the Phoenix ore body. and. Uh, all of that work culminated in a, in a news release that came out, unfortunately, during the pandemic, uh, earlier in 2020 here, that uh, declared the third party uh, consulting firm, Petrotech, hydrogeologic experts, uh, had taken all of the data that we collected from our actual field test, right, from actual wells, actual pressure transducers in the ground, and they calibrated all of this actual data into a uh, into a model that laid out how the water flows would work in Phoenix, and then they simulated an ISR mine in that in that you know in, in the hydrogeologic model, and they declared, not us, okay, they declared that we had achieved proof of concept for ISR mining in Phoenix. I mean, this was a massive massive accomplishment for us. And so here we are, we're approved, we're we're, we have high conviction around the project, we prove up the concept through our work in 2019, in early 2020, and we've got an environmental assessment that had already started in 2019 with an approved project description 
and a favorable scoping decision from the CNSC, our Canadian nuclear regulator, which will oversee this process, uh, that we can follow generic environmental assessment guidelines. All of that is wind in our sail for development. And so our objective is to build the mine. And, and every year, the mine doesn't get built or falls off schedule. Our NPV for this project is being pushed out a year. And that NPV, I mean, Phoenix alone is, is a $900 million pre-tax NPV. I mean, we could use, let's do the math right now. 8% on that, our discount rate. You're talking about $75 million a year in lost NPV. Every year you push it out. And so for us, raising the money had to be done one way or another. And if you're interested in the long-term story of this company, then, then frankly, we all should be applauding the fact that the money's in the bank and the project stays on track because what we save is a $75 million loss in, in, in terms of value to the shareholder by having the money in the bank. So now if I come to that question, you, you can see that for us, uh, we need the funds to move the project forward. This work is not free. And it's absolutely necessary if we're going to drive value for the for the shareholder. I know that nobody likes the share price, and, and trust me, nobody ever likes the share price when you raise money. Uh, never, I've never gotten a call that says, you know, that that's a great financing. Uh, you know, you, you you've got the exact right price. That never happens. Uh, but people need to look at not the fact that we raised the money because it was it was always going to be needed. Uh, but they need to look at what we're going to do with the money and what it's gonna mean for the underlying value in the company. And, and, and that I could talk about for, for hours and be happy to, to go through that. But you know, I think when we look at the exact timing of it, if I try to get back to the, to the question, I'm sorry for the, for the, for the journey, but um, we really want to get the environmental assessment back on track. The, the EA has been paused through the pandemic um, because we could not carry out the consultation work necessary through the communities in northern Saskatchewan and to save money because the regulators aren't free. If we didn't make a formal decision to pause it, the regulators would keep charging us their costs. Uh, by making the formal decision to, to pause the EA, uh, which we made in March, uh, we've saved a lot of money. And, and we really do want to get back at it. We want to get back at it properly. We need money to do that. And we wanted to put the money in the bank so that we could put together and act on and deliver on some really fantastic plans for 2021 and beyond. And so that goes to the last part of your question. Uh, where does this money take us? We'll look today. Uh, so end of, end of October uh, 2020, we're sitting with $29 million Canadian in cash. And that gives us a lot of runway. It gives us a lot of runway to move this project forward on the EA and on the feasibility study, uh, you know, the, the, the expectation on our end is that we're not coming back to the market in a meaningful way anytime soon. We, we've got our mandate, which is unchanged from 2018, to deliver on this project. And now we've got the cash in the bank to do it. Good points. The context surrounding MPV, the big picture, I think that shareholders sometimes uh, lose sight of, of the larger picture here. We don't have any issue. We're content with what you guys are doing. And 
we understand that sometimes when the money comes and the share price is a little bit better than it was, obviously, if you look at March 2020, you can say in April, I want to say you guys raised a small amount of money, but the share price at that time during COVID sell-off, I believe we got around, I think it went below 20 cents if I my memory serves, and then we were up around 57 cents or 56 cents uh, there in September. And Andrew, that's that's part of it too, right? Sorry to cut in. I mean, People have got to remember, we, we didn't uh, soak the shareholders by raising a bunch of money in, in April. You know, we needed that money to, to, to carry on through the, through the pandemic. We didn't know how the pandemic would go, but we took a real sensible small amount. And uh, the idea was, yeah, you, you can try to pick the top, um, but you know, there's a funny thing about the top, okay, is that there isn't depth at the top. That's why it's the top. So, you know, if you realistically think about where where you where you can where you can actually tangibly raise big quantities uh, to move your company forward, it's never at the top. The top is the top because the, there isn't a buyer anymore at that price, right? Well, I need the buyer to be able to issue the stock, and so. Well, and frankly, you know, even when you when you do issue at the top, I mean, everyone then is a loser on that financing. But but there isn't depth at the top, and so it, you know, actually, the way you've laid it out, when you kind of think about where we've been, um, you know, it's 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 it makes sense in a way that we would have a significant up round from the April financing, but that we would be raising somewhere between the two, right? That's where you're going to see the depth and the support for the story is somewhere between those two points, and. And that's really where where we came in at. And, uh, you know, this just just for metrics. I mean, if you take there was some very volatile trading uh, on our stock uh, the the day that that deal was launched. And and just for everyone's benefit, I mean, this is a a public offering on a on a shelf prospectus um, through Canadian securities rules with distribution in, in the U.S. That type of offering doesn't happen uh, like an overnight private placement in some of like you might see in some of the uh, um, junior, um, more junior mining companies, and, and we've done those before too. Some of those overnight private placements—they literally happen at four o'clock that day. You see where you've closed in the market, you call up a broker, and you see if you can do a deal. The deal we did didn't do that. It was, wasn't one of those. I mean, it took you know time, uh, legal compliance, and, and time with the underwriters beforehand. And there was a lot of volatility on the day that uh, that uh, the financing went live. But if you take that volatility out. And, and we can we can all speculate on on you know whether whether that was uh, impact of a, a blogger or or some other factor. I mean the the sector didn't move, so it seemed like something was up um, on our stock. But if you take that volatility out, can you look at the pricing on our offering on the five day VWAP from the five days prior? The financing went without a warrant, okay, no warrant, at a nine percent discount. The five day VWAP before. It was well supported, significantly upsized, and I'll tell you, it had a diverse book of institutions and really good support from retail. So it was a really healthy, healthy offering, and, and that's the way we want to raise our money. Instead of raising it in in April uh, at, at uh, in a in more distressed environment. And Dave, talk about just the demographic that came in, if you can. Is there any names you can share with the the demographic that came in? Maybe new shareholders. Anything on that front? Well, look, I'd love to, but I can't. In a public offering, uh, it truly is a public offering. So it would be like me, it would be like a broker um, 
telling uh, someone that, hey, Mrs. Smith just uh, sold her shares in IBM, right? Um, so that, that is a, look, it's, it's a fair question for you to ask because it's common for people to uh, provide some color around, you know, the, the financing was anchored by this person or that person. And we, we've certainly done that uh, before where we can. But in a type in a public offering like this, like it's it's basically illegal to 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 name off um, any of the investors. What I can tell you is that it was a, a really diverse and distributed book uh, with many like when I say many like twenty um, you know institutional investors, uh, all all with good good levels of, of, of buying power, hence hence the size of the offering, and a really nice retail uptick with with significant cutbacks uh, across the board. Uh, to actually settle on the level that we closed versus the level of interest. So that's, that's about as much as I can say. And, and it is, I'm glad actually that I get the opportunity to say that, that we, we can't comment on specific investors because of the type of offering. Because I know there are some questions around, well, who are the, you know, other people will tell, you know, will, will say who the lead order is. Why aren't you doing that? Is it, is it someone sinister? And, and no, it, it, it's not. We just like are, are legally not. <laughs> Have permitted to share that because of the nature of the offering. Okay, let's break it down a little bit. Was there any uranium-specific focus groups that came in under this, and was there any general natural resource groups that came in under this? I would say yes to both. Okay. Just briefly, you, you talked about the, the small capital raise during the COVID sell-off. What was your thought process? Take us back to those days in March where everybody was getting slaughtered and talk about your thought process there and, and the need to raise a little bit of money. For sure, not a complicated one. It was very much a uh, make sure that this company survives. People have to realize, I mean, you know, Denison has, has a really solid asset base. We, we've got great board of directors uh, and, and, and we have a long history. And, and everyone would never think about a company like Denison having, having you know, survival in this situation. But every company was in that state one way or another. In, in March. And, um, you know, we, we, we were in a position where we needed money for the year anyways. We probably pushed it out too far uh, in terms of not raising the money. And, and part of that's because we, you know, we didn't want to dilute shareholders at prices we didn't think were, um, were, were representative of where we'd want to be. But, um, you know, that's, that's like playing the stock market. And at the end of the day, we didn't know how the pandemic would go, but we knew that we were running light on funds. And so we, we called up, um, you know, I use that term proverbial, you know, sort of uh, figuratively, but um, we leaned on uh, some, some significant shareholders and um, we were very grateful for their support. You know, and the Lundin family was a significant participant uh, in, in that financing and uh, they were not, you know, price sensitive per se. Uh, they, they were there for us when we needed them, and we were very gracious for that. And there were others. I mean, there were uranium-specific investors uh, that, that everybody knows uh, that were also uh, amazing, amazing supporters uh, during that financing. And, and really, it was about finding the quantum of money that um, our, our strong supporters were comfortable investing in that market, but that also gave us uh, a real nice security blanket that says, you know what, we can continue out for 12, 18 months in one form or another with this money in our bank account. And we wanted to see the other side of the pandemic. 
Uh, and, and like well, nobody's through the pandemic, but we've certainly been able to adjust our vision to what it looks like to be in the pandemic. And the markets have continued and, uh, you know, in some, some areas are very positive and, and that's all great. That's what we wanted to see. We wanted to see the other side of it and uh, put our plans together, uh, figure out where we're going next and then come back to the market for the money that's necessary to move the project. And that's exactly what we've what we've done with the October financing. We had one of our audience members write in, Dave, and I want to share this, and I quote here, I normally trust the Lundins, but something is strange. About seven months ago, they raised about $6 million to fund business activities planned for the remainder of 2020 and 2021. Now it's $19 million for an EIA they're already working on, more evaluation, more general working capex, end quote. As you know, the company now has 677 million shares outstanding pre-definitive study and pre-development financing. What are your thoughts on limiting dilution through to sustaining cash flows? Well, it's, yeah, look, it's, it's a focus constantly to, to limit dilution, but dilution is, is a reality of, of a developer. I mean, we have internal cash flows that help offset some of that from UPC and our closed mines business, but, but advancing a, a real uh, project forward in a way that is, uh, buildable, like building a team, building the project and actually advancing it with a with an actual conviction to construction is not a cheap date. And I don't want people to think that there's, you know, endless dilution ahead, but they do have to recognize that we have to fund this and it's and it's not uh, it's not going to be free. But what they also have to understand is that every dollar we put into uh, de-risking this project results in an adjustment in people's implied discount RNAV, and that adds value. So we're not diluting without doing something. We're diluting uh, and we are adding value. And I can give very specific evidence of this process because when we put out that proof of concept news release, again, lost in the pandemic, but not by all, because we have, we have very good research coverage. And we had two different research analysts change their target price on the back on the back of that proof of concept news release the explanation being this is a material development for this company and this de-risks the project significantly i'm adjusting my price to nav target ratio or something similar in their model to reflect the fact that the company has increased the value of its assets okay uh, amongst others with very positive comments from all of that we had two target price increases I think we even had like an upgrade by one, like in terms of, you know, from, from, a, from a hold to a buy, something like that. I'd have to go back and check. But that's what we're getting for the money that we're spending, right? This isn't G&A. It's, it's not G&A holding costs that literally just erode your exposure to the company. Most of that we're funding through our cash flows. All of this money is going to de-risking and moving us closer to that NPV. In the same way, so, so Andrew, it's a similar thing. In the same way that time hurts the NPV, right? Every year that we push that NPV out, we lose $75 million. As long as we, you know, every time we de-risk, we break that NPV more real. And that means that someone can pay, you know, closer to full value for this project every time we de-risk. So there's tangible uh, consequences when it comes to adding value from this money. And, and we'll focus on finding the best way to raise the money to minimize dilution. We do not prefer equity, but 
you know, and we would love to bring in things like strategic investments or, or, or streams, royalties, things that, you know, pre-sales of uranium, anything that, that links more to NAV than, than to a discounted NAV. But people have to understand that, that those things are not, uh, not always good. Uh, they're not always economical. And they sometimes have really negative consequences associated with them that we're also trying to manage. So it is a question of when, sometimes it's a question of when does the dilution happen? When is a shareholder happy because there's no dilution today? But by the way, tomorrow when our share price goes up and a convertible debt or something like that gets exercised, um, then there's dilution. I mean, does, does that make people feel better? So it's it's one of those things like there will be there's a natural balancing in all of these stories and in all of these equations where moving the project forward is not free i mean even if you're selling your product in advance that's not free right that's that's a revenue you will not get later you might consider that having a lower cost of capital because of the way it's calculated in which case it could be a good move today but it really is math and we are good at math um I mean, I'm, I'm a CPA, uh, and so I do a lot of math, um, and our team is really strong in that, and we're constantly focusing on, can we find other ways that have a lower cost of capital than the equity market? And for this situation, uh, there were not lower cost of capital uh, means to keep that project moving and save us that $75 million hit on the NPV. So it, anyways, I digress a little bit. It's, it is about what do you get for the money? Uh, not the absolute uh, impact of dilution because it's not happening. We're not diluting in a vacuum. You know, we're taking the money and adding value one way or another. Yeah, and you know, there's a number of other companies. If people are wanting to find companies that are just burned in GNA, there's a number of those out there for selection. A few close by there, and certainly I, I agree. And the net present value analysis, if anybody looks at that and they look out the amount of time that we're talking about on some of these projects, how the NPV drops off over time is, is substantial. So I, I think what you guys are doing makes sense. Uh, short term, it might hurt a little bit, but I think long term, as this project moves forward to project finance and how you guys structure those deals and how some of the strategics and, and the strong backers come in and get some of those deals set up, I think that that's when we'll start to realize the good deal that's been set forth. Maybe just one other thing. I mean, sorry to, 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 to jump in again, but, you know, we're in it for the long run, right? And um, that's what we're focused on. I know that there's pain in the short term. And you know how I know that? Because I own a lot of stock. <laughs> Not only do I own stock, uh, i got stock options. And, you know, if anyone has any, any doubt about our, our conviction in the long run, they don't have to look very far uh, then to see that it's all public. I mean, this all, all gets filed to see that I have stock options that expire in November. And uh, they're, they're, they're well-priced. but And they were in the money before the financing. I did not exercise them, didn't clip them, uh, thinking that we would do a financing and wanted to pocket that money before we did a discount offer. I didn't do that. Um, and they're out of the money now. Now, why would I do that? I do that because I own a bunch of stock. I have a bunch of restricted share units. And the value that we're going to create from having the money in the bank and moving the project forward far outweighs the value that I'd have gotten clipping that option, right? So, I mean, I even bought more stock in the offering. So, it, it is we're in it for the long run, and uh, that's the focus. But we totally sympathize with the the what I'll call short-term pain that that some people have definitely felt.
going forward on some of these potential capital raises, issuance of shares, will you guys look at using the existing shareholder exemption under Canadian securities law to maybe also involve some smaller uh, existing shareholders that are maybe more on the retail side? Look, I mean, uh, nothing's off the table. Um, it, it is It is sometimes a question of magnitude, right? And, uh, you know, the, it's funny. I mean, what, what, if you do sort of smaller offerings, I certainly think there's an optics there of uh, consistent, um, you know, perennial financing or regular financing, that sort of thing, which I think can be negative. But um, but we're, we're certainly not opposed, of course, to existing shareholders coming in. We generally have not been using that exemption. Uh, we've, we've typically done, um, lately we've done two public offerings uh, this year. And, and prior to that, we would have often done private placements where uh, people are coming in exempt on their, um, their accredited investor status. But, um, you know, often that'll exclude sort of the retail shareholder. But these public offerings are wide open to any investor, including any retail investor. And I did get some feedback on that in the last in the offering where, where I did get a shareholder uh, email, you know, suggesting, oh, we're just doing these deals with, uh, with uh, these institutions. And then those guys are just turning around and sticking it to the retail shareholder. And, and I sent that guy, you know, we traded a few notes. And, and basically, uh, I sent him a note saying, well, look, actually, this is a public offering. Uh, you can participate. You just need to have a broker that's in the syndicate or in a buying group. Uh, but but yeah, the, these offerings that we've done in 2020 that are consist or considered public offerings, they're open to anyone. So so that is and that is different from us. We have typically been doing uh, private placements that would use accredited investors only. And I believe that particular exemption can be used concurrently with a, a larger uh, placement, um, is my understanding. So it's something that would happen together, maybe under a shortfall scenario or something. But I think, we, we've, I think we've seen the Lundin Group uh, companies do that sort of thing before, where they've done an, an offering with a with a concurrent private placement, for, for sure. Yep. Let's move to the ISR on Phoenix. Let's talk about that for a moment. At this stage, with what you guys have done, and we'll get to the uh, the environmental assessment here in a moment, but talk about just the method here and the technical risk for using ISR. How confident are you that the risks have been mitigated and how certain are you that this project moves ahead as currently planned? Well, we've never been more confident. Uh, I'll say that pretty, pretty bluntly. Um, you know, our technical team, we bolstered it uh, on, the, on the backside of the pre-feasibility by bringing in uh, literally, uh, I mean, a guy I will describe as a Saskatchewan uh, mining legend, uh, Dave Dave Bronkhorst, uh, spent many years uh, at Cameco, um, was involved in the construction operation of MacArthur River, and uh, really, really smart, innovative, technical guy. Uh, Dave, Dave was in retirement uh, from Cameco. He'd been very successful there. And uh, we actually lured him out um, because... And he was already interested, frankly, because he was looking at what we were doing with the ISR. And he was convinced, before we even convinced him, that it was going to be a game changer for the Athabasca Basin. And since then, uh, we've done that massive field program in 2019, where we drilled a whole series of test wells and commercial scale wells into the ore body. We actually operated pumps. Uh, moving solution through the ore body. This is like an actual field test, right? This is not a lab test. Uh, we've mapped out 
parts of the hydrogeology uh, for that deposit. We have an understanding of how things are flowing. And then really it culminated with that report by Petrotech that we talked about earlier, where they concluded we had achieved proof of concept. I mean, our confidence level has never been higher. Uh, this is a third party that has nothing, no skin in the game to say uh, that we've achieved proof of concept. I mean, they, they could have just as easily said that this will not work. Instead, they've said this will work. Um, that has us very excited. Now, the, the, there's other work that's gone on, um, but all of it's been designed around conquering the primary technical risks identified from the pre-feasibility study. The first of which was around the permeability of the host rock and its varied nature. And that's, about, uh, that's really a question of, can you move solution through the actual host rock? So all of this work that I'm talking about from 2019 and that proof of concept report, it proves we can. So number one technical risk, well in hand, right? Uh, second technical risk was, was really around like the leachability uh, of the rock. Our test work that we had done through the PFS was more conventional in nature. So bottle roll tests, uh, column tests to, to figure out like the leachability. Well, like those aren't really that, they're representative of the rock, but they, just for everyone's background, I mean, all those tests involve taking core samples and breaking them up. And it's really about like figuring out how much you can leach from the rock if you put it through a mill more than anything. And of course, we do not have a mill with the ISR plan, right? We're leaching in the ground and then we're precipitating the uranium out of that solution on the surface. But um, so there's a risk there that you know those those um, sample, that those that test work wouldn't be representative of how it would leach in its in situ state. So we carried out a specialized test at the Saskatchewan Research Council in Saskatoon with intact core, and we got a photo of this uh, apparatus in our slide deck. Uh, it has an SRC logo. It's a big big blue piece of equipment, but. What it does is it takes that intact piece of core, packs it in a sleeve, and uh, has an outer sleeve around this inner sleeve that pressurizes the sleeve on the core so that the sleeve is tight to it. And then it introduces the leach solution to one end of the core. Well, of course, with that pressurized sleeve tight to the core, the leach solution has nowhere to go but into the core itself. It cannot go around it and leach the surface. It has to go through the core. And we put out a news release uh, beginning of, of 2020 that provided the, the, the results from one of these samples. And not only did the solution move through the core, which you know our other work that we've done on perme permeability and with permeameter testing suggested it would. So not only we verify that we actually could leach physically through the space in the core, right? A lot of people will think this uranium is super dense. It's really heavy and feels like a, a high-grade uranium core, feels like a bar of steel, well, it does. But when you use that microscope to look at it, it's actually quite globby in there and there's room for the, the solution to move through it. And so number, not only did we move the solution through it, we recovered like 30 grams a liter over 20-day average from, from that sample. Our PFS only relies on us recovering 10 grams per liter. So if we can replicate that, that means that, you know, for the same equipment, we could produce 200% more uh, pounds 
or we can shrink the size of our equipment and produce the same 6 million pounds that we we're modeling, or of course, somewhere in between, right? Um, but that, that really took a lot of risk out of that second risk around, well, or took a, lot of, took a lot off that second risk of our ability to leach in the in-situ state. So in, in 2019 and early 2020, we've really conquered um, some of the biggest technical risks, the highest priority risks already. And, and now we're really advancing into refinement and, and sort of final de-risking just, you know, in a stepwise approach. Like, you know, we, we eventually we have to get to feasibility study level and, and we're not there yet on, on, the, on the field tests, but we aren't going to just jump ahead to a big pilot plant or anything if we weren't achieving all of these milestones. And, and so our confidence around getting there is, is actually quite high now because we've seen fantastic results in key areas that we have tested and we've tested the highest risk items already. Very well. I assume that this will, uh, from what I've seen about it, I don't profess to be a, a technically proficient in, in all of these uh, different methodologies, but uh, certainly it looks like this will move forward as intended. And it sounds like you guys are confident in that. With the interruptions with COVID, which I'd hope at this point that policies and procedures are in place by now to stop the lost time, what's your current thoughts regarding the timeline for Phoenix in regards to completion of an EIA, getting to the DFS, the permitting, finance, and breaking ground? What's your thoughts on timeline and the sequence milestones from here? Well, Andrew, I mean, we definitely have been working on that throughout 2020. Uh, again, I totally sympathize with uh, with the interest um, in, in in asking that question. But we're also not exactly in a position where we can disclose it. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't be uh, coming up. Uh, but some of these things, of course, require uh, board approval, joint venture approval, uh, because we have made a formal decision to suspend the EA. The formal part of the EA uh, requires a formal decision to resume the formal part of the EA. You know, the team has not been um, inactive. I mean, the team's actually been very active. So you're right. Uh, we've been back in the field. We have developed the policies and protocols to operate in the COVID environment. Uh, the team has not been sitting on its hands. Uh, we did complete an ISR field program in uh, 2020. And we just put out a news release in regards to that. And all of that work was designed to be able to allow us to come back aggressively uh, when the EA resumes so that we haven't lost time or that we've minimized the, the impact of, of the pandemic on the schedule. So this is what I would call blocking and tackling, right? We were blocking and tackling this summer, not as glamorous, but specifically designed programs to make sure that things that could affect the timeline that we can do, we've done so that we can come back with a timeline that um, that, that is maybe less uh, it impacted less than, than some might expect. Now that said, timeline is complex. Okay, we have a thousand line schedule. I don't know, maybe it's two thousand lines. So it's, it's it's a very detailed schedule of all of these steps and things that need to happen between now and construction, and it is dynamic. So yes, while the environmental assessment is is a critical item on that path, there are other things that our team has been working on that will have an impact in all likelihood on the schedule, but maybe not on the environmental assessment side of the schedule. 
And so we are really looking forward to being in a place where we can disclose that information uh, to the market, but it, it is a process and, and the market does need to let us get through that process properly to be able to provide good quality disclosure that guides the market correctly in terms of the, the new schedule for the project. Um, what I can do is reassure people we're certainly working on it. The project will not be stagnant, has not been stagnant. Work has continued with a focus on minimizing impact to schedule. Um, but we also are not in a spot presently where we can guide more specifically, but we certainly will be in a spot where we can guide more specifically at some point in the, in the not too distant future. And on the schedule, if you guys are able to advance some other critical path items and also maybe potentially cut slack where, where you guys can in that schedule, do you see getting potentially back on track or do you think that that's uh, you know, outside of your control with regards to potential COVID problems going forward? And then lastly, put this in the context of your competing competitor development companies in Canada. Do you still believe that Denison is absolutely first to market with regards to large high-grade development projects in Canada? Yeah, look, I, th I think the, the COVID impacts will be uh, manageable. Um, I think we'll, we'll be able to get back on track. I, I, I don't know that I can speak for the other projects and their status. I don't think there's been very uh, much in the way of updating on some of the other projects in a way we get uh, penalized for being very transparent about where we're at. Uh, so, so hard for me to handicap that second question uh, in terms of where we'll be. I know that it is our focus absolutely to bring the project forward uh, as aggressively as possible because it makes sense to do that you know, for our project. Um, our objective is to be the next uh, new large-scale uh, uranium producer in Canada, and we believe that that is still uh, you know, something that is going to happen, and uh, we're diverting our effort and our resources to do it. So I, I think when, when people are able to see the news that we have and when, when it does materialize in a way that is rational and see our new plans, our updated plans, and see what we've been up to, um, I think people will be more comfortable uh, with all of that. And, and we, again, we completely sympathize with the uncertainty that's been created by a temporary suspension of the EA. But, you know, there's certain things that must be disclosed because they have, uh, because they're, they're real. And uh, our EA is, formal EA is suspended. So, you know, we were transparent about that. And we've been transparent about what we've been doing. And we'll be equally transparent uh, when the EA is resumed and when our new plans uh, or updated plans are, are available uh, and, and where we can disclose them. And, and I, think, I think people will see that the, the story around Denison that everyone's very excited about has not changed. In fact, I'm optimistic that uh, people will see the story as even better when they actually are able to share uh, in some of the uh, developments that we've been working on uh, this summer. Yeah, I would say that Denison is, certainly is ahead of your competitor development companies, uh, comparable peers that have you know similar size projects, similar production profiles. Talk about the, the major permitting needs here, Dave, just briefly. What major permits uh, do you see as key permits to obtain yet? When do you expect to have them if you can give us maybe a year to round off? And I suspect all of these will occur prior to project finance offtake. Okay, so there, there is, um, we, we often distill the permitting process just to the environmental assessment 
it is this call it the biggest piece of that but there's permitting and there's licensing uh, with the cnsc so there are other pieces to it um, but really the ea is that longest lead and and perhaps the most um involved process so you know without getting into schedule because of course we'll we'll, we'll guide that when when we're able to do so um you know, we were planning to submit the environmental impact statement, which is the document that, that gets approved as part of the EA process uh, towards the end of 2020. That was our previous guidance. Uh, so obviously with the temporary suspension of the EA, uh, that, that will no longer be the case. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable for people to use uh, a, a bit of a linear approach to understanding that, well, we've been suspended for a period of time, uh, so I suppose the EIS is not going to be completed this year, will be completed next year. Look, uh, again, without putting dates on anything, because we'll, we'll, we'll do the best we can when we make a disclosure on that, I don't think that's an unreasonable uh, thought process for someone to have. We are expecting that once the draft EIS is submitted, you could be a one to two year process of engagement uh, with the regulators and uh, impacted uh, parties. And of course, we will endeavor to make that be as short as possible uh, and I do think we have a very good case on that because of the nature of our project and the minimal impacts associated with the ISR mining and the fact that we don't have tailings coming out of our operation uh, gives is an example of whole chapters of, of this EIS that aren't going to exist for us and hours and days of discussions with regulators and, and community members that simply won't be applicable for us because we just don't have uh, the same sort of waste that will come out of a conventional mining operation. So I'm optimistic around that. Our plan is really to bring the feasibility study and the EA together at the same time because they relate to each other. You know, there is a the consultation process. Think, think of what that word is. You're consulting. Well, if you're actually consulting, you're taking the input that you get from those interested parties and you're considering it and then you're weaving it into your project designs. So we, we don't see the value in, in having a feasibility study before we've gone through that process. Uh, we can we have updates all the time behind the scenes that are live. They're not 43101, that's why they're not published. But you know we, we, we will be iterating throughout this process with the view of having a feasibility study coming together at the end. Now look, others might follow a different path and I'm not trying to be critical of that. Everyone has a different program and a different approach for their project. It's, this is just our approach is to have that feasibility study come together with the environmental assessment. And, and at that point, you really should be in a position to project finance with the two things in hand, right? The approved EA, uh, you, you, you may be licensed or close to licensed uh, with the CNSC as well and the feasibility study those are the ingredients you're going to need off taking you know i don't know it's um it's, it's not our objective uh to, to off take a significant amount because we've got very high operating margins uh today's spot price but it you know well it'll be a to be determined what uh the the financing group that we put together will will need in terms of comfort uh, to finance the project and and it's possible that there will be uh, you know some requirement for some level of customer commitment and and we'll, we'll deal with that uh, as, as we get there but um, but yeah all of that stuff is going to converge uh, for this project as that EA gets concluded 
the offtake portion, you know, for a project like this, if the costs are true, that the offtake can be minimal enough to sleep at night to get the finance package through, but leaving your order book, your capacity book, uh, very open for later stage market, which obviously will result in substantial differences of what we expect now versus later. For sure. And, and Andrew, there's also different types of offtakes, right? And different types of contract commitments. You know, we, we are in, intending to keep the book highly levered to the uranium price and, and uncommitted. But, you know, a long-term contract that has good market-related terms, but that shows a financing group that customers support the project could be a very good thing without giving up uh, upside or, or too much upside uh, to, to a utility. So, so those are things we would consider. I don't want people to think that we'd never sign a contract on this thing. Um, it, it's really just about us having the choice to sign the contracts that work for us, whether they be in the nearer term or whether they be in the longer term. This, the key difference is we do not need a contract to crystallize a 12% IRR so that we can go get credit agency financing uh, for the development of the mine, right? And have the whole mine basically become a bond uh, delivering into an off, you know, the whole, whole book contract and optic. That won't be us. Uh, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for contracting and off-taking on the project. Yeah, that's correct. And Dave, with the CapEx coming in on the PFS at about $243 million U.S. today, any potential to reduce that from here, or do you see that as really firm through DFS? Well, there's, there's definitely uh, potential, for sure. For sure there is. Um, you know all these all these numbers from a PFS will be scrutinized as we go through the feasibility study process. So uh, I would be, uh, to, to, to be frank and fair to everyone, there will be ups and downs, uh, right? But I, I do think there's actually potential on the CapEx to, uh, to, to be reduced based on some of the work that we've been, uh, we've been up to. Uh, and it's already the lowest CapEx large-scale project in the Athabasca Basin by a billion dollars, right? So, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, think there is, I think there is potential for that. One of the other things that I do want to point people to, and I'm sorry if it's another question coming up, Andrew, but we do have a, a PEA um, in progress for the J-Zone deposit. And so we're not going to be updating Wheeler River uh, any anytime soon, right? Because we can't really do much of an update until we have a feasibility study. We can guide on the things that we've worked on where we can. Um, but there will be a new study coming out for ISR at the J-Zone deposit in the fourth quarter. And so that that could be so, that should, that's something that people should definitely pay attention to um, in terms of our latest thinking on on the ISR mining in the Athabasca Basin. Yeah, and I want to talk to you just about that. I want to switch gears on some other assets, including Waterbury project in a moment. But come back for just a moment with the, the ISR method. And I, I believe you guys are at the point of probably no return and, and that there's there's no reason to enact a plan B. But if ISR does not work, is plan B to revert to conventional underground? And also with that question, do you see that the progress made in your guys' level of certainty that plan B is not required? Yeah, look, I'd say plan B is uh, is not required. Uh, we have uh, high confidence in where the ISR is going at this stage. Um, but but if, you know, and, and, and we're quite committed to it. Um, you know, we're advancing the ISR mine through the environmental assessment, right? We are deploying our capital to test the ISR mine. So, so our conviction is, is, is very high 
on, on the ISR. We're spending time, and not a lot of money, but spending time evaluating ISR at JZone. Uh, these, we, we have a high level of conviction on the ISR. All that said, um, it is the mining business, right? So there is an implicit plan B because the pounds in the ground are not going to disappear. They will not go poof and, and not be there if, um, if for whatever reason the ISR is not successful. And, and you don't have to look very far on our side to see um, what a plan B could look like. And, and, and really that's 2016 where we had a PEA on uh, the Wheeler River project. And we actually had Griffin being mined first as an underground mine and then Phoenix being accessed underground for jet boring, similar to Cigar Lake. Now that's clearly an inferior plan uh, when you compare it to what we've got now with the ISR, low CapEx upfront funding uh, being used to fund Phoenix and then Phoenix funding Griffin as a second stage, I mean, it's a much better plan. But you know, if, if you wanted to look for a plan B, you certainly would look to something like the PEA to see that it isn't an ISR or bust um, scenario for the company, but at the same time, our, our conviction on the ISR is very, very high, and 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 we have a strong view that it's going to work, and it's going to be the new and best way, and frankly, the only way uh, that you're going to want to mine in the Athabasca Basin if you can. With Denison being under the Lundin umbrella, and the company really being the primary uranium exposure for the Lundin Group, how confident are you at this point that Phoenix does get permitted? It gets financed easily obviously based on the pricing built and in operation by 2025 because if your total costs are true dave then the market price uh, right now is not an object of concern what's your thoughts well look nothing is easy um so i don't think i would ever use the word uh, easy to describe the process but um our conviction is high uh, having the lundines in your corner accounts for a lot and you know, think about the conviction around the mining method that we just talked about. Well, that conviction has been vetted through our board of directors and technical committee. Technical committee consists of Ron Hochstein, CEO of Lundin Gold, former CEO of Denison, Jack Lundin, son of Lucas Lundin, CEO of Bluestone Resources, just helped Ron Hochstein build their gold mine in Ecuador, is now building gold mine in Guatemala, and Bob Dengler. Uh, also, mining legend from Dynatech, uh, founder uh, of Dynatech, that um, you know these are mine engineers that have vetted all of the work that we've done through our technical committee, and and so they're, and they're, and they're sponsors from the Lundin Group, right? And they're adding value to us by 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 putting us through the ringer on all this stuff and saying, you know, what, guys, this you have good plans. And we fully support you moving forward with this. It's that kind of sponsorship that is going to be critical when we move this forward to the next stage. And we look for that project financing and we turn to the banks and they say, oh, well, the, the Lundin Group supports this story. The Lundin Group uh, and, and the Lundins are behind this and they believe that it's going to work. Look at their track record, right? So, look, I mean, our conviction is high on the technical side. And we believe we have a lot of great ingredients in place for it to be commercial, for our conviction to be high on the commercial side, that we will be able to finance this project. It will not be easy. I mean, it will be like any mine project. I don't think any CEO from any mining company would ever say that their project financing was easy. But um, but, but we, we believe that it's, it's, it's all looking very, 
good in terms of being able to pull it off and be in construction and producing, you know, and I'll say in the mid in the mid 2020s. And I mean easy, I guess, in the context of the Lundin Group, when you look at a project like Jose Maria, multi-billion dollar project, I guess that's the context I mean reasonably easy. Well, for, 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 uh, for, for sure, 300, 300 million Canadian is a lot easier to raise than 1.3 billion or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. I, I, will, I, will give, I will give you easy in that context. Yes, Andrew. <laughs> Certainly. Let's move on to some other assets here. So the Griffin optionality. Do you see the production profile of Phoenix mid 2020s and through cash flows will in part finance the expansion towards Griffin CapEx if the market conditions warrant? Do you guys see that really Phoenix will be a pretty substantial financier of the expansion into Griffin? So the PFS contemplates that that strategy uh, with the stage development of Griffin. And in the PFS, uh, with all the assumptions we have in that base case, you know, which has Phoenix selling uh, pounds starting at uh, just over $29 in its first year of production. Okay. So that's like at today's market price. Um, Phoenix does fund Griffin development in its entirety. So the intent is that there would be, there wouldn't be new capital necessary. Of course, we will do the math to look at the use of capital and the cost of capital because there is an internal cost to capital. Um, perhaps it would make sense to leverage uh, Griffin with, with that cash flow from Phoenix providing some support for that. Uh, but, but operationally and in, in the PFS model, it, it shows that Griffin can be fully funded from Phoenix the way we've uh, structured it. So it should Excellent. be, and I think people should be modeling that there will be one capital injection to this company uh, to build Phoenix, and and that should be it. That sounds good, and that's good to clarify. Let's move over to Waterbury for a moment. So the decision to start a PEA for the J zone using the ISR method, what's the thought process behind this in parallel to the Phoenix work you're doing, and is there a thought to show and prove up a smaller scale ISR development there? Yeah, a couple of layers to Waterbury. Um, we, we certainly like the idea when we put the concept study together of, of, of testing internally um, how ISR can work in a smaller deposit and what's the, what's the threshold uh, that we would need to make this mining method work in the Athabasca Basin. I mean, Phoenix, we're blessed with you know, 19% average grade, you know, almost 60 million pounds in the high grade core at 43%. It's not all the deposits in the basin are like that, right? It's, 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 it's the only one like that that's, that's been undeveloped. So um, we did want to see how does this work. And, and I think it's important that people understand we haven't spent a lot of money on this because we have a team, right? Our company has made a choice to staff up internally with permanent staff because we're building a mine, right? We're not using consultants extensively. Uh, the incremental cost of, of doing this concept study on JZone was low. And that's because we already have built up this knowledge internally. And our team, frankly, is the expert. You know, the, you, you really can't hire an outside consultant to offer what our team has built in terms of knowledge on ISR in the Athabasca Basin. Uh, we do need outside consultants to sign off on public reports because of the securities rules around 43101. 
But frankly, whoever we hire, no offense to whoever we hire, they're all fantastic people, but whoever we hire will not have the depth of knowledge that our team internally has. And so pretty low cost effort, but it was really about trying to see, well, what, how, how good can this approach be? And, and then, the, then it became a question of, in my mind, of return on investment. I said, well, how, how much is it going to cost us to do this PEA and, and to scope out this project? Well, it's not very much. I think we've got something like half a million dollars in the budget or something like that for, for Waterbury for, for 2020. Well, what might we get out of this? Well, and of course, I'm not going to steal the thunder of the root of the result, but you can tell that we expect it to be positive because we, we declared the concept study a success and moved to a PEA. And then you kind of look at, well, what is, what is the market valuing JZone at for Denison today? And look, we can you know, sift through all the research reports and basically for anything other than Wheeler, uh, the market gives us in situ value per pound on our resources. So, okay, well, we've got 12 million, 12 million pounds of JZone 2%. We have 67% of that. So well, we, can, we can do that math, let's call it 8 million pounds. So what measure are we getting from the market? And, and we're getting you know, somewhere between a dollar, $2 a pound, depending on whose research report you go to. So, all right, let's, let's say it's a dollar for easy math. We're getting $8 million of value. Of course, we're not trading at, at NAV. We're trading somewhere like 0.4, maybe even lower. Um, you know, to NAV. So, so the market's valuing JZone basically at what, like $3 million, 1% of our market cap. I can tell you that we're not doing a PEA to prove up 1% of our market cap. And for the cost, uh, I think it's going to be one of the best investments we've made. Um, you know, just spending a little bit of money to take our knowledge and to show that ISR on a, on a 12 million pound deposit can be, can be good putting an NPV on it, but people are going to have to reevaluate the value of our portfolio when they do, when we do that. And that's really what we're trying to do with JZone. We are trying to build a company that has more to it than Phoenix. We want to become uh, the next uranium one um, of this cycle, um, but we're not, we're not diverting our resources away from Phoenix. Phoenix is the focus, but everything we prove up at Phoenix, imagine if every dollar we spend proving up at Phoenix, has a benefit to JZone or the next deposit or the next deposit. Think of the value that we're going to create with that money we deploy to Phoenix, right? Phoenix warrants all of that investment on its own, all of it. But think of the extra value that we're bringing. This is how we turn the company from being a success story into a massive success story in the long run with, with a rising uh, uranium price. Well, a compelling uh, proposition you've got set up there, and I'm looking forward to seeing what those results come out and how that plays into the overall strategy. Let's move over for a moment. I want to talk about McLean Lake, the nearby conventional deposits there. Given this is a bit of a low-hanging fruit, Dave, when market conditions are there, when would you go after some of these pounds to put through McLean Lake Mill? Well, so McLean Lake's a joint venture, and of course that complicates life. Uh, we're 22.5%, and we do have a very strong uh, partner in Arano, or you know, formerly Arriva, uh, at McLean. They own 70%. So some of that direction will certainly be will, will have to be taken from from Arano. Uh, what I will say about McLean is proximity is good. There's not a lot of pounds left. The 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 richer deposits obviously have been mined previously. So you're certainly looking at something that is marginal generally. Uh, that can be, and you know, your your point is totally on, right? Like. 
can be uh, useful in the right market uh, in, and in potentially shorter timelines. What the McLean Joint Venture uh, has been funding over the last few years is some work on a different mining method that could potentially improve the economics of accessing some of those deposits. Now, I really I am cautious around these McLean deposits. They, they, they are what's left from the last mining cycle, so, so they're not rich. We shouldn't see them as things that are uh, going to be developed anytime soon. And, and right now, the, there is no real plan to, to develop them uh, e- economically in, in this market. So they are there, though, and, and there is value uh, in the right market for those pounds, for, for, for sure. So they're, they're a real leverage, high leverage play. They'd be very comparable in a way to some of the African outfits uh, that have much higher cost profiles. Let's stay on McLean Lake for a moment. I want to talk just about the monetization deal that happened uh, that you did in 2017. Can you just speak to what the status of this arrangement is today? What are the obligations remaining under the deal, Dave? And what is the plan to realize future value out of this asset? Right. So let's do a recap here. So that transaction in 2017 um, was with Anglo-Pacific and and, and what we did is we took the Cigar Lake toll milling contract and we, we monetized our share of future revenues from tolling of Cigar Lake ore. So it's, it's only related to Cigar Lake. Any other uh, material that comes to that mill from anywhere outside of McLean Lake could be subject to a toll milling agreement. And we have preserved our ownership of any of that, any stream uh, coming from that. So that's critical for people to understand here that we have not sold our, we never sold our interest in the mill or our right to any other futures toll milling. We did monetize or factor or de-risk, whatever term you want to use, our toll milling uh, receipts that would be coming from the Cigar Lake contract. So, for example, 2020, that is looking like a pretty prudent transaction to have done in 2017 because Cigar Lake shut down for several months and that toll milling stream was interrupted. And so that would have, if we had still, if we hadn't monetized that stream, that would have had a direct impact on our financial results. We would have been short that cash that we probably would have been relying on. Uh, and in, in reality, this year it's had no impact on us. We already brought that cash in and we were uh, you know, not affected by it. And we won't be affected by any disruption at Cigar Lake or McLean. Uh, when it comes to those to that uh, arrangement with with APG, so it's it's basically been a non-event for us, and um, it's 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 really a, a, a quite a simple simple transaction for us to manage now because we we receive toll milling from Cigar Lake and we pass it to APG. Uh, if we don't receive it, there's nothing to pass to APG. So you know that's that transaction. In terms of what happens next at the mill, I mean it's got six million pounds a year in excess license capacity. You know, that's uh, that's an asset, it's a strategic asset. It's got a tailings facility uh, that's licensed. And by the way, the mill exists, it's operating and it's, it's self-licensed. So how do you realize value for that? Well, you gotta put other pounds in there. And when you look at what's available, uh, there are some deposits nearby. McLean, we talked about, not the best, right? Uh, Midwest has great potential. Uh, J-Zone's nearby, uh, Rough Rider's nearby. I don't, I don't really expect too much to happen with Rough Rider. Rio Tinto seems to be very cool on the uranium space and have not been doing work there. Um, but how about our Griffin deposit? Right? And and Griffin is planned in the PFS to, to be a source of feed from McLean Lake. So 
there, there are there are uh, projects that can fill that pipeline. I would say that Arano is a little bit light on uh, their own projects that fill that pipeline. So I do think that we have a very very sensible case in terms of bringing bringing some Denison production uh, to our own mill uh, for processing. How does the uh, the current agreement with the uh, Cigar Lake material that expires at some point? I think in 2030. It basically no, it basically covers the life of you know without getting into the details or anything confidential. I mean, it basically covers the life of of a Cigar Lake Phase One and Phase Two, whatever however long that is. Okay, and what do you see as you know going forward? Obviously, it probably makes sense as long as you guys are in the area that it makes sense that you guys retain that ownership uh, portion in the mill, but maybe you can remind the market, what do you see, Dave, that the fair market value of that share is at this point in the market? What do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, you can certainly do some math on it and, and there's different, different lenses you can use and you know, we are good at math, um, but you know, I can tell you replacement cost on that mill, actual cost, historical cost is, is probably uh, approaching a billion dollars Canadian. So, I mean, that's a measure you could consider. But really, I mean, to answer that question, uh, you have to ask, well, what, what's the value of actually having a seat at the table to access the mill's capacity? And that's invaluable. Um, you know, can, can, if somebody drums up a plan that they're going to send production to McLean Lake, uh, that doesn't own part of McLean Lake. I mean, how do you even have that discussion? And 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 who's where's the balance of uh, power in that discussion? So you know, is is, is the McLean Lake joint venture going to make somebody else's mining company a success by by providing them access to a mill? Maybe if they don't have any feed of their own. But if an owner's got feed, I mean, I think that's 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 where the value is, right? Is that an owner can be talking to another owner. Saying, look, I've got product. Let's work something out for a toll milling deal. That's like a tangible, a real thing that uh, is hard to put a price tag on because it's it's like whether something is realistic or not realistic, right, Andrew? Like that, that maybe both have maybe there's a value on that mill, but one makes mining developing your mining project realistic. Uh, if you don't have that ownership interest, it makes developing your mining pro- project without your own mill unrealistic. That's 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 pretty binary. Uh, that's that's you know this real value for that mill. Hard to price it per se, but man, uh, you'd want to have it uh, if you could. Well, it certainly isn't reflected in the market cap of the company today. I can tell you, maybe later in the market, I think that'll obviously change. But uh, it is an interesting proposition. The share there and, and how you've got that structured, I think it is a very very strategic asset. Let's move on. Let's shift over to uh, long-term contracts here for a moment. Do you see that the long-term contract deals, Dave, do you see that you guys contain that expertise in-house to secure those deals, or do you see that you'll be looking to uh, outside consultants for this component? Yeah, Andrew, similar story to what we've done on the technical team, uh, and I hope people are starting to get the message that, uh, that our company is for real uh, because we're, we're, we've made investments in people, and, and people are what make businesses happen, right? Uh, not consultants. And uh, so we brought in VP commercial Tim Gabrick in uh, 2018. Uh, Tim had a uh, long history VP marketing at uh, Cameco, knows every utility in the, in, in the market. 
And uh, we could do that because we've got that UPC contract and um, Tim, Tim Max is our chief commercial officer for UPC. So made a lot of sense for us to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim is Tim and myself. I mean, we are perfectly capable of accessing that contract market and have uh, with Tim's experience. We have all the experience you could ever ask for in terms of somebody going out to the market to, to build relationships with customers and ultimately contract uh, with customers. So, so that's not something that uh, that we would expect to require outside help with. And um, you know, they certainly rely on and lean on some of the industry participants and some of the experts out there. But Tim has those connections and uh, maintains that dialogue to be well connected in that market. I'm expecting that we're going to do all of this uh, internally and probably build up a commercial team over time. Well, as you know, you've got around 11 million Canadian with investments in sector names uh, such as Sky Harbor and GoVX. What are the plans with Denison involvement with these companies? And is the plan to ultimately monetize these investments in a mid-late stage bull? Well, uh, I think those investments, like anyone who has investments in those companies, are, are filled with optionality. Let's talk GoVX, for example. Um, we've changed our strategy from being a, a, a company with international assets to one with Canadian assets several years ago. Um, but we did not want to sell out on our African assets at, at a very low point in the market. Uh, I can tell you that uh, our investment in GoVX has already increased from, from where it was when we uh, funded that company by putting in our African assets. And that was our expectation. Um, is that we were not going to cash those assets out for, for very little. We wanted to have to participate in an improving market and an advancing company, and GoVX. And, and, and we still have that view uh, that we'd like to participate in an improving market and an, an advancing company in, in GoVX. Uh, I mean, it, it gives us optionality. If GoVX is very successful and the uranium market moves in a particular way, then uh, having a foothold in GoVX means lots of things. Uh, does it mean it's a block that could be sold to a strategic? Does it mean GoVX could be taken out by a strategic altogether and we get cashed out? Sure, it means all of that. But it could also mean that uh, it's, it's a foothold in that company if, if there ever is a time when the market uh, moves to a place where there is a case for being a more global company and having exposure to different production. I'm not saying that that's our strategy in any way. I mean, we're laser focused on on advancing Wheeler, but just, just as an example of the type of optionality that comes from that investment. Similarly, you know, there's that option of if, if we're looking for capital to advance our own project, is, is it a source of capital that we can tap into uh, to, to build a Wheeler? Absolutely, it could be. And uh, so we're, we're, we're really maintaining that exposure. Uh, we are protecting it. We've, we've tried uh, very hard to not monetize that as a, as a source of capital, as you can imagine, because we don't believe the value is being the value that should be recognized in that story has been recognized either. And there's there's a better time to to look at what to do with that investment rather than today. Dave, wrapping up here, what do you think investors in the market is really missing about Denison, the existing assets, and the company potential here? Well, Andrew, you know what it is. It's um, look, and, and the timing of, of our discussion is fantastic because. I think Denison's story was was lost through this through the pandemic, and and are we to blame? Uh, sure, in part. I mean, we 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 came out transparent with these with the temporary suspension of the EA. I think what's lost is that that announcement didn't mean that we've done nothing all year. 
I can tell you we've been as active this year as any other year. What, what's happened is that that work has been internal. And it wasn't the same as 2019, where we had field tests and we were leaking out news drip by drip by drip because people were following this ISR field test. People got, uh, I, get, I guess, maybe a little complacent or uh, comfortable um, comfortable, yeah, with the fact that we would have a regular drip feed of news. We had that for almost two years straight. Um, this year, we haven't had that. Well, you know what? A lot of companies in the development space don't have that. And I can point to, you know, our, our competitor of ours, NextGen, fantastic company. Um, I mean, they haven't had a news release all year except for uh, announcing their, their their financing. But but they've traded well, and you know they've got a great asset. Well, guess what? So do we, and uh, we've been working on it. So I think the investors are missing that uh, the, because the company came out and transparently said that EA has been suspended doesn't mean that the company hasn't been active. And, and I really want people to understand that the, the news flow is, is slated to pick up for our company, particularly with us being well capitalized after this financing. And I can point to specific things coming up like that JZone PEA uh, that people need to be paying attention to. and if Denison's fallen off your radar because you haven't been getting your, your, your monthly fix of technical news from us, we'll put it back on the radar because the company is still moving forward. All of the story and everything that we, we, we had people interested in before is still intact and it's going to become again front and center uh, now that we've put the money in the bank. And once we get this EA back off the ground and make a formal decision on that. So, Definitely, uh, I do think people are missing that. There seems to be a perception that our company is not active, and that's just not correct. Uh, and and I, I want people to understand that uh, Denison has not changed. We've been active. Uh, we just haven't been able to put the news out because sometimes things take time to get done. And, uh, and people can expect uh, a more robust news flow cycle from us uh, in, in the coming months. And, and they should really be looking at the stock right now uh, post-financing uh, because the, the prospect of any near-term dilution uh, of any meaningful amount is low, and yet there is a significant news flow ahead. So it's, it's a really good opportunity for people to be positioning in this name ahead of the, the work that we have coming up. Well, very well. And I was going to ask you, you know, with, with current price levels, market cap around 210 million uh, U.S., why investors should be considering Denison now at this stage uh, for the company, and of course the current uranium market conditions and i think you just uh, you know told them why and again i would also point to the fact that if you'd like a discount to the uh, most recent financing uh, you have that today dave any final comments on that and then uh, how can folks reach out to the company if they have any further questions look andrew i mean fantastic chat uh, you always cover uh, amazing material and i've really enjoyed the opportunity to, to reach out to the investor community on, on this platform and yeah, I, I think people really do need to look at our name and, and remember what uh, what they were interested in before and realize that that's, that's not changed. In fact, now it's uh, funded and, uh, and we do have news flow ahead that, uh, that people should be looking forward to. And, and to follow all of that, um, you know, definitely on our website, DennisMinds.com or on our uh, Twitter or LinkedIn, uh, Facebook feeds. Uh, we're pretty active there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we are very accessible. Please uh, reach out to us through our website and, uh, and we're always happy to, to connect with investors on small questions, big questions, uh, whatever it is. I mean, investors are our owners 
and we, we really respect that. And, and if somebody has a question about uh, what our company is doing, uh, we will we will confront it head on, just like some of the topics uh, we, we've talked about today. And and look, I, I really just want to thank people for for being supportive of our story. Uh, there are many people that that are very happy uh, with what we're doing, and uh, they they do see the long term plan ahead here. And and uh, those shareholders, and, and frankly, all of our shareholders are fantastic for for being so supportive of our company. Yeah, well, let's leave it there, Dave. I do appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time and uh, keep progressing, Denison, and uh, stay well out there. Thanks again, Andrew. It's, it's really a pleasure.